Hi, everybody, and welcome back to Season 3. It only took a year for me to get this new one done. It's Access Podcast, the podcast about podcasts. And if you're a new listener, my name's Maddie Stout. 11 years ago, I left the number one morning show in San Francisco to join the startup team at Stitcher, and I've been in podcasting ever since. I'm the vice president of podcast programming for iHeartRadio, and in general, I'm a podcast nerd. I love podcasts, and I love helping listeners find new shows and also get to know the folks that they already love. This week on the show, we're going to meet our new producer, Morgan, who is going to tell us about three shows you should be listening to. But right now, I want to tell you about our guest. I love this guy, Ben Bolin. Ben, he began as an intern at How Stuff Works in 2007, the early days of podcasting. And in 2008, with his esteemed colleague, Ben created Stuff They Don't Want You to Know, which he hosts along with another one of my favorite podcasts, Ridiculous History. Let's take a listen to Ridiculous History, and then we're going to start a conversation with Ben. But if you want to be a citizen of the United States, there is some paperwork involved as well as some verbiage. You have to yeah. recite an oath. got to speak an oath. you got to put your bloody thumbprint on a document, mm-hmm. sign your name in, in, in blood, no? Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's changed over time. You still have to have interviews. You have mm-hmm. to take citizenship tests. Naturalization is what they call it, right? Mm-hmm. Ben, I think I'm getting close to being able to ask if podcasting is something you always wanted to do, but we're not quite there yet. What made you actually want to get into podcasting or was it something that you kind of fell into? Oh, man, a little bit of both to be completely candid. So I started working for How Stuff Works as an intern in the days of yore, pre-podcasting. And when we first as a company began making podcasts, I immediately wanted to be part of the movement because, you know, I, I know you're the same way with this, Maddie. I've always been in love with radio since I was a wee tyke. And this seemed like a way to participate in all the things that I loved about radio growing up. Now, again, to be honest, we had no idea how far we would go with this. Our first podcasts were only about five to 10 minutes long, which sounds crazy nowadays. But I I went into this with my eyes wide open, and my mission was to be on as many quality podcasts as possible. To date, I have guested on numerous podcasts. I've produced many. I've hosted and written for four to five and never looked back. So I fell into it, but I guess maybe the best way to say it is – I I fell into it in a hopes and dreams kind of way. If I was not podcasting for this company, I would have ended up podcasting somewhere else. I just love it. I love the medium and the format, the whole nine, man. It's funny that you mentioned, you know, being an old fan of radio. I started doing radio shows in my bedroom when I was 10 years old. And part of my job now is I go and work with radio talent about podcasting and and kind of, you know, how they can create great podcasts. And one thing that they'll always look at me and say is, so this is just kind of like the radio we used to do when we talked a lot and had a little more time on our hands. And I think it's true. What were the earlier radio shows that you listened to that got you hooked? Oh man. Okay. I am a huge fan 
of late night AM shows. That's where you can hear some really cool stuff. And then late night college radio stations. So I loved 88.5 here in Atlanta, which is a GSU station. And I was always a big fan of a show called Coast to Coast AM. Love that. uh, Yeah, Art Bell and George Norrie. I thought those guys had such tremendous interview skills and they were profoundly compassionate. You know, they spoke to some very eccentric people, but they heard them out. And so to me, that kind of talk was transformative and it was wide ranging. And it was just as much about the personality of the host or the talent as it was about the information they were imparting. And I feel like that's a trend that has continued to evolve. You know, now more and more often, when you hear really good radio, it feels like a podcast. Yeah. At the end of the day, it's good storytelling. That's what I always tell folks is that, you know, a great podcast is a great story. It's got a beginning, middle, end, and you feel like you've gone somewhere and you've learned something, which is another thing that I love about podcasting is I feel like I'm kind of one of those curmudgeoning people that feel like people don't read enough anymore. They don't educate themselves as much mm-hmm. as I think they should, but they do. And podcasting is now filling that hole. What do you feel about that as far as podcasting being, you know, kind of a greater, a greater good for society? Absolutely. Not to sound too overzealous, but I absolutely agree with you, Maddie. As a fellow curmudgeon, <laughs> I think we're on the same page. Whenever I am setting out to produce, write, or develop a show or an episode, my first question is always this. When someone starts listening to a show or an episode and they get to the end, what has changed within them? Have they learned something new? Have they um, have they changed their mind about something? Because, yes, podcasts are storytelling, but just like the reader of a novel, the audience is part of the story. They're the main character. The most important part of any show is going to be the people who listen to and support it. So I absolutely agree. I would even go a little bit further and argue that to a very real degree, podcasts are democratizing education. The things that people used to have to go to grad school to learn, they can get the information for free now in the form of a podcast. And it doesn't matter where they live. It doesn't matter what their socioeconomic position is. This is a fundamentally game-changing thing, and I think it's for the better. I teach at a university, and I've seen over the last eight years how students have become such fans of good podcasts. And I have students that the only radio they listen to is NPR. I can't imagine saying that 10 years ago because there's no way kids would have listened to NPR 10 years ago. But they're finding it through podcasts, and they really enjoy the content. Absolutely. You know, one thing I was always very interested in when you and I originally met was the way that you have this, let's say, a 40,000 foot view to use the old cliche. You can see the industry growing on its own. You can see all the parallels it has to radio, but you can also see the tremendous potential it has in terms of education, information, and storytelling. So I don't know if I can say this on the air, Maddie, but you are kind of my go-to guy to send an email if I'm like, hey, what's happening with this thing? Oh, I appreciate that, Ben. I just, I love the medium. I often talk about watching where it's at now and where it was 11 years ago when I left radio and went to Stitcher because there were many years of the last 11 years where I doubted 
whether we would get to the point that we're at now. And it is so exciting to see where we're at now. I mean, getting to work with how stuff works and have this synergy that we've got going on right now. I don't want to get too in the weeds on that stuff, but it is a lot of fun. This is definitely the salad days as far as I'm concerned with podcasting. (laughs) Oh, oh yeah, I agree. I feel very Patrick Henry about it in a way. It's like we have not yet begun to podcast. We're sort of, as an industry, if we look at it in terms of like a maybe a three-act structure or something, as an industry, we are at the beginning of the second act and things are escalating at a delightful, if intimidating, pace. Many, many people had never heard of podcasts until Serial was parodied on Saturday Night Live. You remember mm-hmm. that? Yeah. On that real quick, I just remember teaching a class and talking to a student about cereal and having another student walk in and close her ears and walk out and say, you're going to spoil it for me. And I was <laughs> like, that never happened before with a podcast that people were that into it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's kind of a Malcolm Gladwell-esque tipping point. You know, podcasts went from being, let's say, relatively niche or obscure in the late 2000s to now being something that certain professionals are just expected to have, like a business card. If you're a comedian, for example, you have a podcast. It's part and parcel now. So you host two shows that I love, but for different reasons. Let me start with Ridiculous History because it's my dream job. I love history. And the stuff that you guys find and cover fascinates me. You actually did one of the podcasts recently about the town in West Virginia that reached out to the Soviets to get some stuff. I'm from West Virginia, and I consider myself a pretty good West Virginia history buff. Didn't know Uh that story. Where do you find these awesome stories for that podcast? That is a fantastic question. We go about it a number of different ways. So any podcast I do, I think the audience is the most important part of the show. So I want to hear what they think their fellow listeners would enjoy. So we'll do a call for topics. Tell us something that you think your friends around the world who also listen to this show would dig. And it gives people a chance to tell their own story, you know, whether it's West Virginia or whether it's somewhere in Indonesia, you know. The second way will be my co-host and my producer and I will sit together and we'll pitch each other these strange things that we found in our individual reading. We'll also go to resources like Ask Historians on Reddit is fantastic. And then we have a team of of research associates. Well, I say a team. It's one guy, but he's awesome. (laughs) And uh, and, uh, he's awesome and he's definitely part of the team. What he'll do is back when there were a lot more text articles on how stuff works, he would go through and talk with some of the people writing those articles or some people who were doing some podcast or video content just to see if there were any hot leads. He would give us a hot lead. We are very, very open. We only have a few rules. The only big rule we have is how recent is too recent. And that's anything anything before the 1990s, we're pretty good with because old as it makes me feel to say it, and some of us listening may be on the same page with me, the 1980s were officially a long time ago. <laughs> 
Oh, I know. When you're doing that podcast and you're finding stuff and you put it together, I don't think people realize how much goes into creating a podcast because, you know, when you do a really good podcast, it sounds like two guys just talking. And I always tell people when they tell me, hey, I think I could do your job because I can talk and I talk with my friends. And I think, well, that's great. I'm doing my job very well if we can do that. (laughs) How much work goes into one of those podcasts to make that sound that effortless before you do the show? So on Ridiculous History, my team and I have a beautiful situation because we already have rapport. We're all actually friends in real life. We hang out. And that makes a huge difference when you're in the booth. We also do our own individual research. A lot of people are surprised sometimes when I say, you know, Ridiculous History doesn't really have an outline. We have the gist of the story, and then we go and do our own separate research. Our mission usually is to surprise one another in a positive way. And when you can have that happen, it's beautiful. But you can only have that happen if you put in the time to earn that sort of breezy conversational flow. So a good way to think of it would be for a show like Ridiculous History, let's say every 30 minutes of show you hear is maybe on the light end, five or six hours distilled and concentrated. But that's, again, I can't emphasize this enough. That's kind of the light end. You've probably had this happen too when you hear a concept and you're thinking, this would make a great show or this would make a great interview. And you start digging into it and you have that whoa rabbit hole moment. There have been times where I've been prepping for an episode for two weeks and I'm still thinking, okay, We've got more work to do. We're in the land right now of podcast ideas. If I had a dollar for every email or phone call or text or a conversation I had where somebody was pitching me their idea, I'd be super rich right now. But that's the thing. Putting out a quality podcast, it's a lot more time and effort than a lot of people realize. Oh, yeah. Especially when you consider all the work that goes into the final product, because there are one person armies, people who are making great independent content and stem to stern. It's them for the entire show. And that stuff can be good and that stuff can be great and astounding. But it's always, always helpful to move with a team, with a unit. So one thing I think that we've learned through our years of podcasting is that the information tip typically already exist somewhere pretty often. And the person listening to the show, they can read the book too. You know what I mean? They're looking for something extra, something else. They're looking for that story, that personality, that flavor. So I spend a lot of time with new podcasters working out some good podcast hygiene. That's what I call it. Takes a a lot of time. There are no shortcuts and it changes every time you've got a new person with you. One of the biggest things I recommend for anyone listening who wants to do a podcast with their friends or their pals, regardless of what your podcast is about, whether it is a deep dive in history, whether it is something as niche as football in the 1930s or something like that, no matter what it is, if you have the opportunity, take an improv class, learn to yes and, learn to support your co-host and every episode you do, try to make them sound like the smartest, funniest, most fascinating person in the room. And if they do the same thing, you will have an excellent and amazing conversation. 
That's awesome advice. I want to shift over to talk about your other podcast that you do. And I have mixed feelings about stuff they don't want you to know. I'm a Occam's razor kind of guy. I mm-hmm. honestly believe the easiest answer is usually the right answer. You know, there was no conspiracy to kill JFK. I'm firm on that. When you're doing a show that's about conspiracies, how hard is it to not go down rabbit holes and believe everything is a conspiracy? Well, we live in an age where being credulous is common and it's even applauded because people are in information overload and it's incredibly tempting to just take a headline as an answer. I'd like to clarify this for everyone listening. Stuff They Don't Want You to Know is a show about critical thinking applied to conspiracies. I'm going somewhere with this, Maddie, I promise you. So <laughs> so I, I mentioned earlier, you know, in the age of instantaneous information and information overload, I said it's tempting to just look at a headline or a buzzword and then use that as a cognitive shortcut to pull up all the other things you earlier associated with that. The term conspiracy or conspiracy theory itself is a thought terminating cliche, and it's often used to dismiss legitimate acts of corruption. For instance, back before HSBC was caught laundering money on an international scale for drug cartels, it was called a conspiracy theory. And it was called a conspiracy theory because that helped it become something easily dismissed. You know what I mean? Like, no, I understand. Yeah, absolutely. So this is interesting. Our mission with this show is to is to dive into those things on the edge of the map and, and to honestly ask those questions and look at the facts and then look at what people say they believe. Because the weirdest thing about this is often when people believe in something conspiratorial, if presented with facts that would disprove some or part of that belief system, it goes down to your bedside manner. Nobody ever changed somebody else's mind by yelling at them or condescending to them. We change people's minds by Socratic method, by asking questions, by being part of the conversation. To your question directly, which I think is an excellent question, how do we how do we do this show for as long as we've done without falling into a rabbit hole of credulity? It's true, you know, people can often end up drinking a bit of the Kool-Aid to use the the crass figure of speech. We don't. What I have found, we have found real conspiracies. It's true. They're out there, but those real conspiracies typically are groups of people who feel that they deserve more power or money or influence and then use the power, money or influence that they have to pursue more of the same. The big question you have to always ask yourself when you when you hear this kind of stuff, what is the motivation? Who are the they and stuff they don't want you to know? If someone for some reason decided to fake the moon landing, why would they do it? Why would why would so many people do that? What's the point? You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. that's when a lot of conspiracy theories tend to break down because finding a genuine, powerful motive along with genuine, powerful means that happens much less often than people think, you know? Oh, what's that old line? I think it was in Sherlock Holmes or something about how every every disguise is ultimately an autobiography of the person wearing the disguise. And hmm. a lot of times when people are strongly invested in a particular easily disprovable conspiracy theory, for lack of a better term, 
they're associating it with their personal identity and they will feel personally attacked if you say, well, it's not true. Like, here's a war story for you, man. One of the weirdest ones, one of the ones I got the most hate mail about ever was the flat earth beliefs. I thought, why would we even waste our time and our listeners time exploring this thing? And then, our, you know, we're a democracy or team votes and they say, OK, we'll do it because for some reason now it's trending. And so we did this and explained why people would believe this or profess to believe it and then outlined several experiments you can do at your own home to show yourself the nature of Earth, the heavens and the solar system. And then we got this deluge of hate mail. People made hit piece videos of me on YouTube. And there are so many other real problems, escalating violence and stuff like that. But I responded every email. I didn't make a response video, but every email I responded to. So to sum it up by way of long prologue, and I apologize for that, it is tempting to believe the first thing you read about a subject, right? But you're not being fair to yourself and fair to your listeners, whether it's the idea of, you know, suppressed technology or something, or whether it's just a study of which deciduous trees are most prevalent in a given part of the world, you've got to read multiple sources. Yeah. You have to you have to confirm that. And once you start reading multiple sources, that's when you see the things fall apart because human beings, every single one of us, we are brilliant. We are hoarders of knowledge. We have tremendous potential and we want to learn. And that means keeping a secret or conspiring, right? That's usually going to be very difficult because you are surrounded by people who are terrible at keeping secrets, who love sharing things with each other and love learning. Usually if something if something is a genuine conspiracy, meaning that, again, people in power worked together for some sort of goal that they wanted out of the limelight, usually there is some way to prove it. Usually there is someone who wanted to share, someone who wanted to learn. It's just it's very difficult to keep a secret. Like with the JFK assassination. I love that you bring up that example. The JFK assassination national, international tragedy, but because of not even necessarily the circumstances of the assassination, but because of the way the government had a difficult time being transparent in the aftermath and in the investigation, because of that, conspiracy theories thrived and do to this day. Easily half, maybe even a little more than half of the population believes they don't know the whole truth about the JFK murder. And a lot of that, again, is just chalked up to the lack of transparency. In the lack of transparency, speculation always thrives. And the problem with that is that once that transparency is granted, once people really can see every single thing that happened and when, they've already constructed an internal narrative. And so they won't believe the truth, even when they see it, because they appreciate the story they have told themselves beforehand. Why are you going to come in and interrupt my story with all these bothersome facts? Yeah. You know what I mean? I think one thing that I get really perturbed about now is that all of these Netflix specials, and I'm going to point to Serial as well, all of these things that are like trying to show why a murder or something didn't happen take away from the victim a lot of the times. So a good example is that Making a Murderer. We have a podcast called Rebutting the Murderer, and Dan O'Donnell does it. And Dan Dan was actually at 
every trial. He knows this family. He knows everything about this case. And he just destroys that Netflix series because the guys are super guilty. But he goes in and explains why, you know, this Netflix special was telling you that guy is not guilty, even though he is. I, I just feel like we sometimes we give a lot of credence to conspiracy over facts and it takes away from somebody's actual pain and suffering. This is a thing that happens with true crime as well. There's ways to do it correctly, um, but there is a danger that it becomes exploitative. One of the things that's strange about the world in which we live is that despite social media and despite the proliferation of different communication platforms, we still see people being dehumanized. And there are certain things on stuff they don't want you to know that I haven't touched and I have no plans to. For instance, the, the terrible, terrible, terrible Alex Jones. You know, I'm a positive person, Maddie, but that guy is the worst. He's a real pill. No, and, absolutely. Uh, I, th I think that if you look up the word tool and douchebag, his picture is in both in the it's dictionary. true, yeah. Uh, so, <laughs> you know, he proliferated a very hurtful an exploitative thing in the wake of mass shootings and other domestic oh, tragedies yeah. wherein he accused parents who had lost their children or relatives or survivors of these tragedies of somehow being in the pocket of some sort of shadowy organization. And that's all well and good for, you know, a feature length fiction film or maybe a really kick ass graphic novel. But these are real people. These are real people. They wake up, they read these horrible things, they get harassed online and Twitter, sometimes in person, and they go back to sleep. They wake up the next day. Maybe the people who are harassing them have moved on to a different cause, but those people are still alive. Yeah. And their children are still dead. That is a massively horrific thing. The Netflix is, I think they do a lot of stuff right and they do some amazing work, but true crime documentaries can easily become this sort of cathartic experience for people at the expense of the quality of life for the actual people involved. So right. I think it's dangerous. And I think rebutting a murderer is doing some doing some significant and valuable work. I think that you also have to look at who's produced the documentary because now we're starting to see when people want to defend themselves or have something to defend it, they have a documentary produced that puts them in the right light. I mean, that happened with Fire Festival. There were two different documentaries that come out and one made Fuck Jerry look good uh -huh. and one didn't. And the one that made him look good was, guess what, produced by them. So, yeah, I thought that <laughs> yeah. was really interesting. You know, for me personally, I was in New York on 9-11 and I lived through all of that and had friends that died. And that's one that if I hear someone talking in a bar and they're into that whole bullshit conspiracy of it didn't happen or, you know, our government did it and all of these things. I get viscerally upset and I'm not a confrontational fella. I like people. I really don't like to argue. But, man, that's one that will get me fired up immediately. I'm glad you mentioned that one because the social aspect of that sort of belief system is fascinating to me. It inherently includes some Orwellian double think. And this is a great way to look at it. The same people who argue that the U.S. government intentionally did this kind of thing for some whatever crazy reason they want to stick in there, those people also at the very same time believe the same government is massively incompetent and cannot bureaucratically <laughs> tell its ass from its elbow. Exactly. So, yeah, so all of a sudden, this group of people who apparently cannot do anything right 
because look at, you know, just congressional rating numbers or whatever, approval numbers. All of a sudden they got their stuff together for one big cartoonishly complicated monstrous act that they orchestrated so perfectly that they also controlled the weather somehow, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, and then they said, okay, we've done this super villainous thing. We have created one of the worst events in U.S. history and we pulled it off without a hitch. Let's get back to being incompetent. It just does not make sense. What's the one quote-unquote conspiracy that you believe firmly that maybe other folks think you might be a little crazy for believing? Hmm. There's a guy named General Smedley Butler. And General Smedley Butler... <laughs> Shut up. The, That's not his name. It is. Smedley. Oh. S-M-E-T-L-E-Y. Smedley. So, Smedley. Yeah, it was a different time, man. What can I say? Yeah, I love so it. he's a war hero, right? He's got that position of an elder statesman. You know what I mean? He's not necessarily active politically, but when he speaks, people listen in the U.S. And he becomes increasingly disillusioned with the U.S.'s pattern of war overseas. And he starts to believe that he is much more of a servant of private corporate interests, right? Masquerading as human rights interventions. But then he tells Congress in testimony that he is approached by one Prescott Bush to join them in a coup to overthrow the New Deal government. Wow. And institute something like fascism. So everything that I just told you is demonstrably true. The problem there is that after that point, people start exaggerating what happened or kind of confusing their own opinion for fact. What actually did happen is, yeah, Prescott Bush approached Smedley Butler and said, General, big fan, I imagine. And me and the boys have been talking and we think it's time for a change rather than working in the system. He was pitching the idea of a coup in the United States, but it never got as far as we know, it never got past the pitching stage. No one actually committed a crime. These were just dangerous conversations that powerful people were having. And and it cheapens the danger of that for people to say unprovable stuff about it. That's one I wholeheartedly think is demonstrably true. I don't know if people think this is crazy, man, but there have been some really successful marketing conspiracies thanks to Edward Bernays. Matt, are you a vegetarian? I am not. Okay, so here in the States, you and I grew up in the age where a lot of people associate breakfast with bacon and eggs. Before Edward Bernays, no one was eating bacon for breakfast. It seemed like a weird idea idea. You'd have like toast, maybe a pastry and some coffee. So this American pork trade group consortium approaches Edward Bernays and they say, Ed, we got a problem. We just can't sell this one cheap cut of pork. People don't want this bacon. They want, you know, they want pork chops. They want pork loins. They want pork ribs. How can we sell this bacon? And so he takes a very, very fascinating approach. He creates a group of fake medical associations or companies. And instead of taking out ads on the radio or in the New York Times or the Picayune, what have you, he has his fake association send surveys to doctors around the country. And these surveys are pretty brief and they're worded in such a way that the doctors would all kind of come to the same conclusion. When I say worded in such a way, it's cartoonish. It's like question number one, would you agree that people should eat food? And then everyone's like, yeah, I'm a doctor. People <laughs> eat food. And it's like question number Number two, which of the following is a food? And it's like, number one, chalk. Number two, nickels. Number three, stickers. Number four, bacon. And so... <laughs> 
through controlling what people could answer, they got this amazing statistic that said doctors, like the kind of nine out of 10, doctors overwhelmingly recommend bacon as part of a balanced and healthy diet. And here are the following benefits of it. And this is published as a study. It's circulated around. And that is the reason that we eat bacon today. That is just one of his great coups. I highly recommend his book, Propaganda, which mm-hmm. is available free online. And it's a quick read. He's the father of PR. But that so those are those are two real conspiracies. And in both cases, uh, I think you see my logic here. In both cases, neither of those, you know, involve extraterrestrials, neither of them involve allegations of the paranormal or time travel or any of that stuff. They're just, again, people with power who want more power. I think there's a whole podcast that could be done on marketing conspiracies and how they've worked. Hey, Maddie, here's a new podcast idea for you. (laughs) I'll write that down, Maddie. So I always finish my podcast with three killer questions. Ben, I've got three killer questions for you. I just like alliteration, so so that's that's what we call it that. <laughs> so first one is, if you could listen to a podcast hosted by any persons, living or dead, who would you like to hear for a podcast? Oh, man. Just to give you a couple of things. My favorite has been Bobby Brown and Whitney Houston, and then I answered this question the other day for somebody, and I said Kurt and Courtney, just because I've been listening to Disgraceland. I'd love to hear what you think. Oh, wow. Okay. I'm going to take advantage of that living and dead and say, I think Orson Welles is great. I would love to hear Orson Welles. I'd be really interested in hearing, I'm trying to, I'm trying to think of just like the most out there person. Okay. All right. So Orson Welles, because of the voice, George Orwell, because of the alliteration there, where it'd be like Orson and Orwell. (laughs) Yeah. So, and then I would also, I'd really be interested to hear Marie Curie argue with Newton, you know? Oh, my uh, oh, oh, wait, never mind, never mind, wait, forget it. <laughs> Tesla. Uh, yeah, Tesla, Nikola Tesla. That's a great one. It would be a heck of a weird show, right? Yeah. I don't know how much sense it would make. Question two, mm. what's the first piece of technology that you got and said to yourself, this right here, my friend, is going to change my life? Okay, I'm really going to date myself here. I hope we're still friends after this. I got a beeper in a pager in middle school you had a pager in middle school i was like i'm on the up and up you know i'm basically a doctor now things are different i would never guess that you had a pager in middle school all right i I was not using it i I just had it no but that's that's cool i'm sure you were the coolest kid in class with that thing i was still a nerd I'm with you, brother. Finally, what's the last podcast that you binged? The last podcast that I binged was not counting any of the stuff our colleagues do, because I did I did binge my pal Matt's uh, Monster Season 2. I like that. What happened to Richard Simmons? Do you remember that one? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, that was a great one. I, I thought that was a great story. I also went down a little bit of a comedy bang-bang rabbit hole. I didn't mean mm-hmm. to, just accidentally did it. And I was like, all right, you know, just like reading, sometimes you'll read something light and enjoyable. And then you're like, okay, I gotta, I gotta read something serious. I gotta step it up. Uh, so my last and current binge is some Dan Carlin, hardcore history. Highly recommend it. It's great for road trips. I am obsessed with Dan Carlin. I have been from the beginning and I also find Dan Carlin to be an excellent thing to go to bed to. My only problem with that is I'll wake up, I'll like say something happened historically, and then I'll go, 
did it really happen or did I did I dream that that <laughs> happened and because of Dan Carlin but man yeah th- talk about somebody who puts a ton a ton of research into his podcast I love it yeah he's he's got a gift and I would put him you know we're we're at the stage now where we will know we've done a good show when a teacher writes to us and says this is the highest compliment in my opinion was the teacher writes to you and says I've used this in class or I've assigned this to my students, you know, That's great. And, and Dan Carlin is college level research and fascinating, fascinating presentation. I love it. I don't really fanboy out a lot, but I think that guy is a hero. Yeah. He's on my Mount Rushmore of podcasters for sure. Ben, it's been great. I'm glad we got to spend some time and do this. And thanks for kicking off season three for me. Hey, thanks so much for having me, Maddie. I look forward to hearing more as the season continues. Thanks, buddy. All right. I'm really excited because we have a new producer. Not that I'm excited our old producer isn't with us anymore. Z is uh, in San Francisco. She's doing great. But I moved to Los Angeles and had to get a new producer here. And Morgan Cook has been doing this out of the kindness of her heart. And, and learning as you go, too, right? Learning a ton. A ton, a ton, a ton. And it's it's what? First episode? First episode. So this is your first time. Uh, Since I want people to get to know you, I'm going to do what I do with all guests. I'm going to ask you three killer questions. Uh Uh-oh. Here we go. First of all, if you were going to listen to a podcast featuring anybody living or dead, who would be on the podcast? I happen to know this question was coming somehow. Really? Hmm. So the people that I would listen to, let's see. I'd love to hear from Robin Williams. I'd love to hear from, I love Jeff Ross. And I feel like we need a woman in there, Chelsea Handler. Oh, wow. That's a neat room. That would be a neat room. I feel like I'd learn a lot and I'd laugh a lot. I'll tell you the highlight of my entire life. uh, Robin Williams used to listen to my morning show in San Francisco. And I saw him at this film festival. I was was there and I was talking. And the other guy who listened to our show was John Lasseter. And that's how I ended up in the movie Cars because John listened to the show and and put me in the movie Cars. If you're a listener and you don't know that, here's my lines. Race car Lightning McQueen is missing. Hey, we found McQueen. Hey, everybody, McQueen's leaving. There we go. You're welcome. Um... But anyway, so we were just, I was standing there, and, and Robin Williams walks over, and he goes, Oh, hey, uh, Maddie, oh, yeah, we listen to the show. Oh, you guys are very funny in the morning. I poop my pants. And I'm like, thank you. Done. I'm over. Life is that over for it? me. Yeah. Such a, such a funny guy. What a guy. Oh, how cool. Question number two. What's the one piece of technology that changed your life the most? Oh, man. This is tough. I grew up with a lot of technology yeah, coming I, at me. I love this. That's why I have the that's why I have a young hip producer instead of me. Um, let's see. Technology that changed my life. Probably the iPhone. Yeah. It's gotta be the iPhone. Just How the, the pictures and your like the phone and yeah. the, probably just the whole idea of having a phone and a camera in the same device and then putting it in your pocket. What do you think your generation would do if it had to use landlines? And, and like, get busy signals. Do you even know what that, those things are, or am I speaking a different language to you? Uh, I, busy, what? Yeah, busy signal. Is that when someone sends you to voicemail? No, it's when you get a, <laughs> you call someone and you get, err, Oh, it's the worst. What would my generation do? I don't know. Yeah. We'd be a lot angrier and more anxious, and we already are. I don't so think I so. I can only imagine. Really? Well, I think you guys, I, I always tell people that there's never been a generation that communicates like you do. 
you know, we had our friend circles and, you know, people mm-hmm. are like, oh, the kids don't talk today. In a day, you can talk to 100 people. Yeah. All over the place. Too. All over the place. Yeah. That yeah. is very true. Yeah. I don't but know how meaningful. Yeah. But how? yeah, that's the weird part about it. I'm the same way. I, I look at my phone. I'm, 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 I'm very millennial in that. I'm a look at it all the time. My wife's constantly saying stop. That's why I like podcasts. 70% of people that listen to podcasts, when they're listening, they don't do anything else. Really? Yeah. Absolutely. You can't multitask your brain. Podcasting demands it. Right. So thank you for giving me your brain for a few minutes. Lastly, what was the last podcast that you binged? Ooh, the last podcast I binged was Congratulations with Chris D'Elia. Another comedian. It was actually the very first podcast I ever listened to. Oh. So we just listened to Ben, and I asked you to find some podcasts that kind of go in line with the stuff that Ben does that people might want to listen to. So what do you got? Yes. So first one I want to start with is called Conspiracy Theories. So it's a weekly podcast. Every Wednesday, they tell the complicated stories that are behind the world's most controversial events and kind of the sides of the stories that you didn't really know beforehand. You learn a lot with this one. Um, It's part of the Parcast Network. Who recently got a bundle of money from Spotify, by the way. Good job, Parcast. (laughs) Shout out. All right, let's hear a little clip of that. Does a cure for cancer already exist? Has Big Pharma coerced the FDA into keeping the lid on a cure so Big Pharma can keep making money off of cancer treatment? Are there even more insidious reasons the FDA and Big Pharma would want to keep the cure for cancer out of the hands of the people? So they're not like whack jobs on this oh, podcast. Oh, no, 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 okay. not at all. They're not like Alex Jones. It, yeah, you're not going to listen to an Alex Jones conspiracy theory on No, that. no. Something about frogs making people gay, I think. No, the frogs are gay. Government <laughs> oh. made the frogs gay, and now if you buy the vitamins, the government's putting DNA in there that'll make your whole body turn into a monkey. You sound just like him. I do. <laughs> all right, sorry. Next up, what do you got? <laughs> Let's see. All right, next, revisionist history. This is a podcast from Malcolm Gladwell. I love him. And Pushkin Industries. He is, he kind of changed the game a little bit. So each week for 10 weeks, this podcast goes back and they reinterpret something from the past. It could be an idea, an event, and a person, something that was misunderstood at the time. All right, well, let's check out a clip from one of my favorites. I love this podcast as well. To the hushed offices of the New York Psychoanalytic Society, where I sat with Michelle Press in search of an answer to a simple question. What if a singer couldn't remember the words to a song? A song he'd sung a thousand times, particular parts of the song, the same part of the song over and over. What would that tell us about the singer? So Malcolm Gladwell is just stupid smart. I think a lot of podcast listening is when you get done, you feel good about yourself and you feel a little smarter. And anytime you listen to Malcolm Gladwell, you feel a little smarter. All right, what's the third one? Slowburn, they take these strange subplots from forgotten characters in political history, and they find parallels to the present time now. So season one uh, dove into what it was like to live through Watergate, and then season two did the same thing, but with Bill Clinton's impeachment. Wow. Well, let's check it out. Not just Clinton. How should we feel about him? More like what determines who we believe and whose side we take in a political fight? What does it mean to abuse one's power? And how would the events of 20 years ago play out differently if they were to take place now? Even though today it looks like it was always a foregone conclusion, that's not the way it felt at the time. 
All right, I think you did a good job with your first three. You think so? I did. Good job. I can't wait till next week. Me too. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. Season three on its way. Great guests coming up, including Jake Brennan from Disgraceland. We're going to have Joe Piazza on next week, who's going to talk about Committed. All kinds of good guests on the way. If you want to check out any past episodes, we've got some great ones. Uh, They're on the iHeartRadio app. You can also hear them on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Send us a tweet. Tweet us at AccessPodcast1. Still haven't tracked down the son of a bitch that's got Access Podcast who's only tweeted once. I don't like you. You can also tell us who you want to hear and follow me. I'm at Matty Stout. M-A-T-T-Y-S-T-A-U-D-T. Nobody has that handle but me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all of the places. The show is produced by Morgan Cook. Thanks, Morgan. Thank you. Music by Casey Franco. Special thanks to Robin Bertolucci and Oscar Ramirez for helping us out here at KFI in Los Angeles. Will Pearson and The Godfather Podcasting and iHeartRadio, our president, Connell Byrne. Thank you, guys. And we'll see you all next week.